Thank you. Turn with me to Titus chapter 1, and we're continuing a series of sermons through the pastoral epistles, and we've completed First and Second Timothy and are going to make a quick trip, really, through the book of Titus. Much of what we find in Titus we've already covered in uh, either First Timothy or Second Timothy, and so uh, there are three chapters, I'm going to try to do three sermons on the book of Titus as we kind of tie things together from these pastoral epistles. And so I'll be reading all 16 verses this morning of Titus chapter 1. And let us give careful hearing to the reading of God's word. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. For the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness in the hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. But at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted, according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord, our Savior. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision who must be silenced because They are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Again, that is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we pray now your blessing upon our time together in your Word that you would uh, be our teacher and our instructor. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit, who as our helper, who you promised would reveal to us the things that you told us. And so we pray now that that would be true for us, that you would illumine us and enlighten us and help us to see your truth for what it is. Give us eyes to see it. Give us ears to hear it. But more than anything, give us hearts to receive it their lives may be changed by it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is the third of the pastoral epistles as you look at them in your Bible. 
but it's actually the second of the pastoral epistles that was written. What I mean by that is they're not in chronological order as you find them in the text. Second uh, Timothy was written near the end of Paul's life. It's very clear that he was about to die. Titus was written between the time when Paul wrote 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. Now Timothy was, or Titus was much like Timothy. You can tell in the text. They had a very close personal relationship. Uh, Paul was Titus's tutor. Uh, Titus ministered with Paul in various places, establishing churches. And just as Paul had left Timothy in Ephesus to minister to the churches they had established there, so he left uh, Titus in Crete to minister to the churches that had been established there. And that's where Titus was when Paul wrote him this letter. He was on the island of Crete. Now, since this is another letter from a seasoned pastor to a younger pastor, since it's written from one who had a lot of experience in the church to one who was just starting out kind of on his journey, learning and growing, it's understandable that we find a lot in Titus, as we did in First and Second Timothy, about the church and about church life. But I would say to you again, that's a very relevant and an important subject for us. Even though the church in our society has diminished, the importance of it has diminished in the eyes of many people, the truth is that the church is crucial in the life of the believer. The New Testament never views the life of a believer in isolation, but always views the life of a believer in the context of the church which is the visible expression of the body of Christ. Now, I know it sounds like preacher talk. But folks, the church is so very important. Not in a general way, but in a very specific way, in a specific way to you and your life and to the life of your family. As I've said throughout this series of sermons on the pastoral epistles, what we do here matters. It impacts your life. Your life here on earth. And your hope of heaven. And and spending eternity there with God. And so I make no apology for spending another three Sundays. Essentially talking primarily about the church. Three things here. We find first in verses 1 through 4. The apostolic foundation that has been laid for the church. You know, we sing a hymn that says the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. Christ is, the Bible says, the head of the church. And Christ is the foundation for the church. But it's interesting that the work of the prophets and the apostles is added to that foundation which Christ has laid for us. In the church. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 19 and 20. Paul says this So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built, here it is, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets 
Then he goes on to say, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. I start there this morning because in verse 1, Paul identifies himself as an apostle. As one of those apostles upon which the church of Jesus Christ is built. He says in verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. We think of an apostle, don't we, as one of a person being a person holding a position of honor, but in reality, it's a position of a slave. Notice, Paul says in verse one, he was a bondservant of God and an apostle. Bondservant means slave. Paul didn't want himself thought of a, as, a, as an apostle by itself. He's not here elevating himself in any degree to any position of notoriety. But he's saying, first of all, I am a bond slave. I belong to Jesus. And he is my master. And he has placed me in the position of being an apostle. Yes, Paul was an apostle, but by his own admission... He was a latecomer to it. You know, one of the qualifications of being an apostle was that you were an eyewitness to Jesus. And if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we find Paul's own testimony about his being called to be an apostle. And his own perspective on where he was among the apostles. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 8 and 9. He's, he's listing all the people to whom Christ appeared after his resurrection. And then in verse 8 he says this, And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. It is a, an amazing testimony, isn't it? It's God's grace that this is one who persecuted the church, became an apostle of the church, and was one of the building stones that was a part of the foundation for the church. I want you to notice in this first section the work of the apostles, of Paul and the other apostles, the benefit of their work to believers. A benefit that continues even to today and is a benefit to us. Look at verse 1 with me. He says that he was a bondservant of God and an apostle for several things. He says, it was, I'm an apostle for the faith of those chosen of God. Now I'm going to resist the temptation, folks, of going down a rabbit trail talking about what the Bible teaches about God choosing a people for himself and sending his son to save them from their sins. I'll only say about that that if I'm not going to believe in some form of election, some form of God choosing a people, I've got to tear some pages out of my Bible. And this is one of them. Where Paul says, I'm an apostle to establish the faith of those who have been chosen by God. Instead, I'm focusing there, I'm going to focus on the faith. 
I'm an apostle for the faith. The apostolic foundation or the ministry of the apostles is for the establishment of the faith of God's people. That it is through the testimony of the apostles and the gospel which the apostles proclaimed. It is through that gospel that we find the message of justification by faith. You know, the, the gospel, the Bible says, is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. It is by grace, Paul says, you are saved through faith and that faith not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. And Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That is the very heart of the apostolic foundation of our faith. Paul also says that the ministry of the apostles in verse 1 was for the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness. You see, it's not just for the establishment of faith, but it's also for the pursuit of godliness. Not just for what we know theologically as justification, but also for the process of sanctification. You know, James says, faith without works is dead. In the context here, it is faith without some sense of godliness or some sense of a pursuit of holiness is a dead faith. How do you know that you have saving faith? It's because there is in your life a desire for the pursuit of godliness. The, the knowledge you have of the gospel leads to godliness. But then he also says that the ministry of the apostles is not just for justification, not just for sanctification, but also for glorification. Verse 2, in the hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised long ages ago. The, the apostolic ministry was designed to initiate our faith or establish our faith, to grow us in our faith, and to bring our faith to culmination. And that's what Paul is saying here. The ministry of the apostles, the apostolic foundation for our faith is one given that we might believe the gospel and trust in Jesus. That we might pursue godliness and strive for holiness. That we might have the great hope and assurance of eternal life. And it's to that end, Paul says in verse 3, that he was made a preacher of the gospel. At the proper time manifested even his word, he says, in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God, our Savior. Paul knew that the, the gospel was a sacred trust given to him. And it was through the proclamation of that gospel people are justified, sanctified, and glorified. That's the apostolic foundation laid for the church for who we are and what we do here as a body of believers. Then second, in verses 5 through 9, we find the importance of qualified elders for the church. You know, there's a major section back in 1 Timothy chapter 3 where we looked at this in detail. I'm not going to do that again. But there's a sense in which the ministry of the apostles has been handed down to what we know today as the elders. We don't have apostles any longer. 
the gift or the office of apostle expired at the end of the New Testament, in the close of the New Testament canon. However, they were the initial leaders of the New Testament church. But as churches were established in different places, they didn't go around appointing more apostles, did they? They went around establishing churches and appointing elders. And that's what we find in our text. Paul has left uh, Titus in Crete, and he says in verse 5, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order, get things right, set in order what remains, and appoint elders in every city as I have directed you. We elect elders today, but in that situation, in the early days of the church, the elders were appointed. Qualified men were put in positions of leadership to give the church guidance and direction. It's clear again from the Bible, leadership matters. You can go throughout the Word of God, Old Testament and New Testament like, and you find specific men God raised up to be leaders of His people, to guide them, to lead them, to point them in God's way. I've said more than once from this pulpit, and I'm sure if God allows me to stay here, I'll say it again. As goes the leadership, so goes the church. Without qualified, godly, spiritual-minded leaders, the church will wander aimlessly with little direction. And Paul does give another list, a very similar list to the one in 1 Timothy about the character of the elders. And again, Keep in mind that the Bible, when it talks about leaders in the church, it doesn't matter or doesn't talk so much about what they do or what they can do, what their gifts are. It talks about what their character is, what their heart's like. And it's what we find here. Verse 6. We find the overarching Attribute is that he is above reproach. We find it in verse 6, namely, if a man is above reproach. Verse 7, the overseer, that is another word for elder, presbyteros, must be above reproach. That's the same overarching qualification given not just for elders in the New Testament, but for deacons as well. They're to be above reproach. Doesn't mean they're to be perfect. No one would qualify. But there's to be no glaring moral defect or sin in their life that would disqualify them from serving in that particular place. Listen again to what Paul says beginning with verse 6. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but being hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, and self-controlled, holding fast, verse 9, the faithful word. Notice that in verse 6, the focus is upon his public reputation. Husband of one wife, children who are Believers, he's not accused of any kind of dissipation, rebellion. That's his public persona. Verse 7 talks about 
what an elder must not be. Must not be self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain. Then we find the the positive side in verse 8. Instead, he must be hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, and self-controlled. The more a church looks for leaders who fit the biblical qualifications, the more blessed the church will be. The same is true for deacons. There are biblical qualifications for deacons, character qualifications. I'll be going over those in the next few weeks for those who have been nominated to be deacons in this church. And I'll say it again, leadership matters. And when a church is looking for leaders, the two questions it ought to ask primarily are these. Who is it that can lead us closer to Jesus? And who can serve us as though he is serving Jesus? I want you to look at verse 9 for a moment because it's the link between this section which deals with the qualification for leaders in the church in the next section which is going to deal with false teachers. An elder, he says, verse 9, must hold fast to the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. The elders of the church are the guardians of the sacred trust of holy scripture that's been given to the people of God. And it's clear in this text they are to hold fast to the faithful word. They're to be able to exhort people in the teaching of God's word. And they're to be able to contradict those who propose what is false. And that does lead to my third point. Which we find in verses 10 through 16. Which is the necessity of standing for the truth in the church. So we've seen the apostolic foundation of the church, the need for qualified elders for the church, and now standing for the truth in the church. And I'm not going to go into detail over this section, verses 10 through 16, because we've talked so much already through 1 and 2 Timothy about the danger of false teachers and false teaching and how we're to stand up against that and to to deny it. But notice in verses 10 and 11 we find this. For there are many rebellious men empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. Notice that these are men who are rebellious, empty talkers, deceivers, And he says they are men of the circumcision and they needed to be silenced. These were what we call Judaizers. And he taught in the church that salvation by grace through faith was not enough. But that something needed to be added to the work of Jesus. In their case it was... uh, the work of adhering to the Jewish standards and requirements, customs, rites, and rituals. And in order to be saved, it was enough just to believe in Jesus. But you had to also do these other things that the Jewish law required. 
they cut at the very heart of the gospel message of salvation by grace. Now you know what people thought about people like that. Remember from Galatians chapter 1 where Paul was writing a letter condemning these kinds of people, the Judaizers. And he said, if I or any other person come to you and preach a gospel contrary to what you have heard, let him be accursed. It's a strong message. Those are strong words. Literally in it means, let that man go straight to hell. Paul took the care of the gospel that seriously. And here he's saying to Crete, look, there are people in and around the body of Christ there in Crete. They're empty talkers. They're deceivers. They're adding to the gospel and they must be silenced. We must never be ashamed of standing for the truth and opposing things that are false. And you need to understand that false teaching is not just something that happened in the days of Paul. But false teaching continues today. I didn't ask permission to use this as an illustration, but I'm going to use it anyway. I don't think the person will mind. I received an email from a member of the church within the last week or so asking about something that has taken place in the mainline Presbyterian denomination, the PCUSA. It's our parent denomination from which the PCA withdrew in 1973. They're, they're redoing their hymnal. And they were considering including the hymn that we love to sing in Christ alone. But they didn't like some of the words. Didn't like the words where it says the wrath of God was satisfied. And so they went to Keith Getty and Paul Townend who wrote the song and they asked for permission to change the words to replace those with the words, the love of God is magnified. To their credit, get in town and said no. And so the church didn't include the hymn in the hymnal. That's a clear example of false teaching in the church today. Of a church wanting to remove even from hymns, what the Bible teaches as propitiation. Where the death of Jesus on the cross appeases the anger of a holy God against sinners like us. What is the death of Jesus? If it's not God pouring out His wrath for our sin on His Son is our substitute. What is the atonement if it is not God's Son standing in our place bearing the full wrath of His Holy Father so that you and I must experience His smile and His grace? 
Do you understand, folks, that the greatest expression of love of God there is is God turning His own back on His own Son that He might smile upon you with His face. That doesn't diminish the love of God in any way, does it? It magnifies it. God loved you so much that He sent His Son to bear the brunt of His wrath for your sin in your place. And you ask the question, how does a whole denomination get there? It gets there this way. Where in individual churches, the elders who sit around the table and consider the things that matter don't have the courage to say, we can't do that. We can't teach that. That's not what the book says. We're going to stand on the truth. It is the God-given responsibility of the leaders of the church to hold fast the sacred truth and to silence those who say things that are false. I've entitled my sermon this morning A Solid Faith because I think that's where Paul takes us here in Titus chapter 1. We all want to have a solid faith, don't we? Well, how do we have one? We have it by looking to and building on the solid apostolic foundation laid for us in the gospel. We have a solid faith by by having godly, scripture-loving leaders who are going to stand for the truth. And we have a solid faith, faith by refusing to entertain anything that stands outside the boundaries of God's word. Help us, help us to have, God help us to have a solid faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. We pray your blessing upon all that we do as your people here. That we would know the truth. And the truth would set us free. Free to love you. And free to serve you. Free to enjoy you. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Our closing hymn is Be Thou My Vision. Let's stand together and sing.